Welcome to Reboot the Sequel, a podcast that reviews and discusses movies that are sequels or reboots to other movies. I'm your host, Vin Rodriguez, and with me sometimes is... Guess! Warning, spoilers ahead. Fairly recently, Netflix put out a documentary called Trainwreck Woodstock 99, to which I received a few comments from friends saying basically, Hey, you were at Woodstock 99, you should do a podcast about it. And while at first I thought there would be no justification for it, I managed to come up with one. Isn't Woodstock 99 a sequel? Isn't it actually Woodstock Part 3? Or maybe a reboot? For the purposes of this podcast, we'll go with that. Turns out there was another documentary, uh, this one on HBO Max, that I could also watch about Woodstock 99. So then I watched that one too. According to the documentaries, there were about 250,000 people at Woodstock 99. According to Google, the number is about 400,000. By the third day of Woodstock 99, the walls were getting knocked down by the attendees, so it is very possible that a lot more people snuck in. Either way, that's thousands upon thousands of different Woodstock experiences. This podcast is just mine. A short Latina from Miami who, by 1999, age 21, had seen some shit. I would have liked to have get the metaphorical band together, basically me and the people that I was at Woodstock with. I'm still at least social media friends with most of them, but I know not everyone is friends with everybody else, and I didn't want to put anyone in an awkward position, so I thought it would be best if I did this podcast on my own. Just me and what's left of my memory of a three-day, less-than-sober concert I went to 23 years ago. I will also make a few mentions of the Trainwreck documentary and the HBO documentary. If you saw them, you might know that there are a few things that happened that might be triggering. So I'm going to stick all the triggering stuff in one area and give you trigger warnings as well as a timestamp, so you can skip that if you want to. I want to preface everything by saying that I do feel bad for the people of the town of Rome, New York. This is not a burden that they should have had to deal with. And I know I should say I always knew, even back then, that there were people around me getting hurt. I didn't see them, but I just knew they were there. There was just way too much going on. I was 21 years old back in 1999 when I went to Woodstock. The perfect age, really. The target demographic. That's despite a Times article about the documentary that mentioned boomers and millennials in the headline and completely glosses over Gen X, as if we didn't make up a majority of the audience there. I normally suggest that the line between the young Gen Xers and the older millennials kind of blurs. I'm just pointing it out because us Gen Xers seem to be the forgotten generation, though I think most of us are happy to let everyone else battle it out with each other. I drove up to Woodstock from Miami with a few of my closest friends. We'd been together a number of years, spending week after week together, partying and just being together like some drug-crazed found family. I don't know who suggested we do Woodstock 99, but I was definitely on board from the start. I had always wished I could have gone to Woodstock 94, but I was 16 at the time and on the other side of the country. There was no hope there. And like most people my age has mentioned in the documentary, we had an idealized vision of the original Woodstock. There were so many bands to perform that we would have loved to have seen, like The Who, Jefferson Airplane, and Jimi Hendrix. So when Woodstock 99 was announced, 
this might be our one and only chance to attend one. Not that we had much money. I was still living while straddling the poverty line back then. But between the seven of us, we could make it. Drive up from Miami in two cars to avoid plane ticket costs. Seven people to split gas with. Camping out at the concert meant not paying for a hotel. Bring some of our own food to avoid paying too much for food at the show, which turned out not to work. The entry ticket itself was relatively cheap, all things considered. The night we left, I almost changed my mind. I was very close to just dipping, going home, no concert for me. But that's not me, that's my anxiety. In the end, I said to myself, Vin, what are you going to remember in 10 years? The time you went to Woodstock or the time you stayed home? And so I got in the car and we drove off. The trip itself was a comedy of errors that started before we even drove off the front lawn. Thing is, we thought to ourselves, let's drive out early, 4am, so we can beat any traffic going out. And this would have been a good plan if it wasn't for the fact that most of us, 4am was our bedtime. Which means we started the trip without getting any sleep. Needless to say, this drive was a struggle. I was driving for a bit when we reached the northern part of Florida, and at some point I fell asleep, swerved, and hit the barrels of Bob's barricades. Thankfully, this woke me up. It also woke up my two passengers, who assured nothing was wrong and told them to go back to sleep. I was driving my friend's car, and lucky for me, she had already crashed her car on the side that I hit, and so she never noticed any extra damage. I learned something about myself that night. And that is, that there is only one thing that can keep me awake if I'm driving tired. Math. The radio didn't work for me, singing, smoking cigarettes, taking caffeine pills. No, what works for me is math. If Jacksonville is 53 miles away and I am traveling at 75 miles an hour, how long will it take me to reach Jacksonville? And so on. Because not everyone on our trip could pull their weight with the drive. At least... Half of the seven of us could not stay awake at all. We stopped in Georgia for an oil change. There was a nice lady trucker that told me and my friend that the gas station will let you shower together for the price of one. Or to quote her... No, I'm not going to quote her. That's a southern accent. I'm not going to go into any accents. <laughs> we drove through Delaware, stopped at a big boy, and I got to say, Hi, I'm in Delaware, like I'd seen in the movie Wayne's World. And then I took a scenic route through New Jersey because two of the people with us were from New Jersey and wanted to show the rest of us their old house. Technically, there were eight of us, but one person in the group wasn't going to Woodstock. They were going home to Maine and asked if we could give him a ride up to New York, which we did. And he wanted to drink a Mountain Dew in each state on the way up, which he did. It was a very uncomfortable 28 hours with all his stuff in the car. By the time we drove into Rome, I was telling the driver of the car the entire life story of how my family got to the US from Cuba just to keep her awake. When we finally did get there, we all felt pretty gross, so we rented an hour at the worst hotel I've ever been to in order for all of us to shower before we went to Woodstock. We showered separately. So, Woodstock 99. Three days of peace and music. I don't know what these people thought they were selling. I'll tell you right now, I wasn't buying it. Who went there for peace? Peace? In a lineup with Rage Against the Machine. This is the machine right here. Or at least part of it. A cash grab using the moniker of Woodstock to bring in the nostalgia dollars. Because we were all too young to have experienced Woodstock 69 that even today is an idealized image in my brain. 
I don't know who went to Woodstock 99 because they thought it would be like 69. How? We all saw Woodstock 94 on MTV, an event that the Netflix documentary barely glosses over. Now, I wasn't expecting the chaos that happened in 99, but I wasn't expecting a love-in. 94, you could tell it wasn't like 69, even then. I'm tired of people saying peace in music like we were 250,000 naive children. Because I'm watching the mayhem on these two documentaries with a huge smile on my face. I am aware how bad that sounds, but I found that while I was watching the documentary, it was very easy for me to remember the thoughts and emotions from my time there. I very easily just slipped right into them. So as I go over Woodstock day by day, I have to pre-apologize. My memories of this are kind of hazy. Day one. All I remember from day one is George Clinton. Seriously, everything else is completely blank. I'm gonna guess we finally fell asleep. I know we had to buy water. There was like a little place you could get some tap water, which we did. And okay, it's not cold, but I went there ready to rough it. And I wasn't gonna pay $4 for water every time I was thirsty. I know I wasn't buying beer. Why would I? The drugs were cheap and sometimes people gave them to you for free. But I do remember George Clinton. I'd already seen him in concert before at Lollapalooza, but one of my friends on the trip hadn't. We all agreed he was going to love George Clinton. By the time the set ended, he was at the front row or near it. We could see him on the Jumbotron. And sorry to disappoint any Korn fans listening. I did like Korn back then, but I didn't want to deal with that crowd. And I knew the crowd at George Clinton was going to be way more chill. Fun fact, I'd never been camping in my life, and I've never been camping since. But again, I was ready to rough it, so I didn't mind having my little tent I shared with another friend. They all went out to the rave at night, but something about the absolute darkness, the outdoors, made me tired in a way I'd never experienced. I was out like a light, and I slept like a rock till dawn. Day 2 Woodstock 99 was everything I expected it to be that day. I mean, the parts that I was actually there for. Because if you watched any documentary on the subject, you'll know that the cost of food and water was actually insane. And some of us decided to leave Woodstock on day two just to go hunting for food. I remember going to a bathroom at a gas station that was somehow worse than the porta potties and must have been next door to the one in the movie Train Spotting. And apparently, I also ate a burger. But I'm not sure if I actually remember that, or if I'm building a memory off what somebody else told me I did that day. There was a bus that took you in and out of Woodstock, but we left in one of the cars and we came back using that bus, which seems stupid in hindsight and I don't know what we were thinking. I hope we at least hid some food in the other car when we got back to Woodstock. That seems like the smart thing to have done. Eventually we made it back, which is good because there was no way I was going to miss Rage Against the Machine and Metallica. But we got there in time for Limp Biscuit too. I was not a huge Limp Biscuit fan. You know, I, I guess they were okay. If it was on, I didn't necessarily turn it off. But I went to see their set because I wanted a half-decent spot when Rage Machine came on. Now there was something I wanted to do at Woodstock. Crowd surf. And if you saw the Netflix documentary, you might know where this is going. Of the seven of us, only two were girls and I was one of the two. 
I felt safe going to this festival because I was surrounded by guys I trusted. Friends who had already protected me from skeevy guys in the past. So with that, trigger warning, let's talk about sexual assault. If you want to skip this section, please fast forward to 15 minutes and 26 seconds. I wanted to crowd surf because I never had. And I thought Woodstock would be a legendary place to do it. And it was. Understand that I have zero regrets about this. I had a pretty good idea about what I was getting into. And I don't want that to sound like I'm victim blaming or downplaying. I just want to say what was going through my brain at that moment. It was one of the clearest memories I have. I knew what I was getting into. A hundred percent. I knew that if I fell, I might get trampled and die. But the odds on that were relatively low. I knew that there was a chance I would get grabbed by the wrong group of guys and get gang raped while others watched and did nothing. But the odds on that were also somewhat lower. <laughs> I knew there was a near 100% chance that I would be sexually assaulted in some way. It sucks. It's not right. But that was the price I was going to have to pay if I wanted to do this. It just was. That was the reality of the situation, however terrible that reality is. I planned ahead. I grabbed an extra shirt and knotted it around my belt loop in case the guys stripped me of my top. And then I moved my way through the crowd, picked a spot with a bunch of dudes and yelled, Pick me up! And then I was up. Crowd surfing through the song Nookie. When the documentary talks about women getting assaulted and raped, the promoters Michael Lang and John Sher just deflect. Cher says stuff that sounds like the worst victim blaming I've heard in years. It's like both their headspaces never evolved past the 1990s. Is that how they thought in 1969 as well? Maybe Woodstock 69 wasn't exactly the peace and love everyone keeps saying. What do they believe is the acceptable number of rapes that can be committed as long as they make X amount of dollars from the event? My guy. There's no mistaking intent. Stop trying to gaslight us. I was grabbed, they tried to take my top off, hands and fingers in places I didn't want them. And then I got dropped during the break in the song. I realized that I'm probably in the third row behind a bunch of skinheads, and that when the song's chorus came back on again, the mosh pit was going to go insane, and I wasn't sure how or if I'd survive it. So I yelled again to be thrown over the fence, and the guys lifted me up, I reached out to the security on the other side of the fence, and they pulled me over. Safe. Mission accomplished. And that was the one and only time I've ever crowd surfed. It's a fun experience, but it's really not worth getting sexually assaulted over. But I just had to do it at least once. The rest of it, been there, done that. Okay, so end of trigger warning there. Welcome back, anyone who left. For everyone who skipped that part, I'll just say fuck you to all the Woodstock 99 promoters and shout out to Jonathan Davis from Corn for acknowledging that, quote, girls should be able to fucking have fun just like a guy. He stood up for women in both the documentaries, and so maybe now I like Corn a little more than I did. Also, props to the lead singer of The Offspring, Dexter Holland, for calling the guys out while he was on stage. But back to the story. I'm out of the Limp Biscuit crowd, and I walk around the fence to get back into the show. Can you believe that 
there were people waiting for me at the exit. It was two of my other friends from Miami that I didn't even know they were there. They had seen me crowd surfing, and so they ran to the exit part so that they could find me before I got lost in the crowd again. I stayed with them for the remainder of the night, just sitting near the back of the audience during Rage Against the Machine and then Metallica. Just us and a few beers in the cool night air listening to some great music. I just realized that I never went back into the crowd again. Rage Against the Machine burned the American flag on stage, which they often did back in the day. After the show, I passed out again while my friends went to the rave. My friends had a great time at both raves, by the way. A semi-religious experience, they said. Day three. And then came day three, where I guess a lot of people were raging against the machine and everything else as well, it seems. It's interesting how the documentaries they address, now in hindsight, the mentality of that day's youth. We certainly weren't hippies. There were some people who were very into the hippie kind of idea, or maybe just the fashion. That wasn't me, and I guess it wasn't a lot of the attendees either. Anyway, day three it rains. The tents start getting blown away and my friends and I that were at the tents tried to keep all our stuff together. I think it was during Seven Dust. Or maybe I got back to the tent after seeing Seven Dust. I don't really remember. From the band list I looked up, I think I heard Godsmack. But the truth is I was staying away from the crowds. The walls were coming down, literally, around us. I walked a lot, took pictures, tried to survive, and decided to save my energy for the end, for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Best show of my life, hands down. How can that night ever be topped? Now I say this next part with the hindsight knowledge that this was a very dangerous series of events. But again... I'm telling you what I remember, how I remember it. And what I remember was mass destruction, and it was beautiful, and I was never scared at all. Let's talk about the fires. It started with one big bonfire from what I could see, with people dancing around it. It was beautiful. I assumed other people got jealous and wanted to start their own fires, so now you have more fires. I'm still standing there just watching the show. The Chili Peppers stopped playing at one point. Some guy came on stage and told us to stop with the fires. And then the Chili Peppers came back on stage and started playing Fire by Jimi Hendrix. Then the show ended. And then comes what Woodstock 99 is infamous for. The fires were just the start of more mayhem. I noticed that some of the light and speaker towers were surrounded by fire. There were people up there. Not sure how they were going to come down. They were surrounded by fire. And I was worried about them, but I had to keep moving. I wasn't about setting things on fire. My friends and I were done. We just wanted to get out, eat, drink water, and take a fucking bath. But first we have to get to the car. And the car is on the other side of what I thought were generators. The generators that were exploding. Turns out, as I learned in the documentary, it wasn't generators. It was the gas tanks from the trailers that were exploding. But since we didn't see the trucks explode, just that they were on fire, we thought there was some kind of generator or electrical transformers or something on the other side of the trucks that were blowing up. Now, the truck tanks were exploding by intervals, and you could time it. So maybe we go around the whole area to get the car, or maybe we run through the exploding gas tanks. We just have to get the timing right like some video game. 
That sounds fucking crazy in hindsight, of course, but we made it through unharmed. That night, I didn't feel like I was in danger at all. It was cathartic. It was a feeling of liberation that I can still tap into. We had left one car in the lot and the other car in town. So all seven of us had to fit in one Toyota coupe. I was in the trunk with someone else, truck open, and then I blinked and I was out of Woodstock and in the garage where we'd left the other car. Literally just blacked out. We drove for miles trying to find a motel. It took about seven stops, but we found one that had a room. I showered three days of grime off me and passed out in an actual bed. Home. There was no way I wanted to make that road trip back to Miami after all that. I asked my friends to leave me at my uncle's house in Jersey and then called my dad, who also lived in Jersey. He came through for me and bought me a plane ticket back to Miami. I didn't know what was going on in the outside world. I didn't know what the news coverage was. But when I came out, it seemed like everyone was treating me like I'd walked out of a war zone. I got to see all the news reports eventually and the MTV footage. My uncles were calling my mom all weekend, criticizing her parenting for letting me go. Remember, I'm 21 in the story. I knew while I was there at Woodstock, I knew that things were bad around me. I didn't realize how bad. My friends and I laid low and took care of each other. We had a great time. No regrets on my side. Hindsight. Overall, I enjoyed the documentary. It gave me some flashbacks to things I'd forgotten, like the throwing of the water bottles and trying to get the security people at the front to spray you with water. I can't believe they handed out candles and that's how the fire started. I didn't know that. I guess I wasn't close enough to get a candle. And what did the makers of the Netflix documentary have against corn and limp biscuit? I can't believe the promoters told the press everything was great and everyone was having a good time. Did they not see the cameras filming everything? The sheer level of public denial despite all the evidence being accumulated by the press and the people is astounding. I found John Sherrod to look like a villain in both documentaries, if that is such a thing. First with the victim blaming of the women being assaulted and then his comments saying that Woodstock 99 went up in flames because we were an entitled generation of kids that didn't want to grow up and get real jobs. Can I say okay, Boomer? Is that still a thing? He certainly comes off worse than Michael Lang, in my opinion. Not that he was innocent in this either. Or did the documentary makers edit the promoters to look really bad? I'm not sure what John Sher could have said that would forgive the parts that are in the documentary. And what about Michael Lang? Was he naively trying to recreate Woodstock 69? Or was he, like some of the other hippies from back in the day, now just another sellout cashing in? I don't want to make it sound like we were a bunch of innocent children either. That's definitely not the case. And I hate to say this, but I doubt we, the adults that were the target audience for that show, have changed much at all. I saw people on Twitter joke that the audience of Woodstock 99 later stormed the Capitol on January 6th. I'm a liberal, though, and always have been. You can't make a sweeping judgment on the attendees. How can you when you have so many extremes in one audience? Victims and rapists. People who went home early. People who stayed until the fires burned out. People who were looking for a good time and people who had a good time setting everything on fire. I'm going to take you back a moment to Rage Against the Machine and Metallica. They, along with the other hard metal acts like Limp Bizkit and Korn, were about as Woodstocky as they were Lollapalooza-ish. In other words, not very. 
And I saw both Rage Against the Machine and Metallica at Lollapalooza in 1996. There was a similar criticism to the lineup that year. People said that the festival was skewing in a different direction, from alternative bands to hard rock, angry metal. Fans of previous Lollapalooza shows were not very happy with the way things were going. This is not me blaming the bands, but the promoters who chose the bands. I don't think it's out of left field to say that music invokes certain emotions, or perhaps attracts listeners who vibe with certain bands they feel are speaking for them. Someone in the documentary said the attendees were screaming, Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, as they destroyed everything on the night of day three. That's the lyric from Rage Against the Machine. Can I victim blame the promoters? Here's the thing. Woodstock 94 and 99 were not too far apart, right? And no one talks shit about Woodstock 94. But it's not like five years is a different generation, though the HBO documentary suggests that it is. I often refer to my late Gen X folks as the Nirvana generation. But Kurt died in 94. So maybe it's true. Maybe five years was enough for a massive generational shift. This is a long, roundabout way of saying... Woodstock 99 was never going to be about peace, partially because of the lineup, but also the price gouging of basic necessities and the subpar infrastructure. It says to us, the attendees, that the concert was never about peace to the promoters either. That's why people called it profit stock. That's something I don't think anyone has ever accused Woodstock 69 of. Different crowd, different time, different purpose. If they had made another Woodstock... I would have gone back. Maybe better prepared. I had a good time overall, even if I was sometimes miserable. There was a lot of firsts and lasts for me that weekend, but I was not surprised there wasn't another Woodstock five years after. That's pretty much it. I really enjoyed watching these documentaries. Those feelings that invoked in me from back when I was 21 was great. I didn't realize that I could still do that, that I still felt that way. I'm going to leave a link in the description of this podcast to some of my photos from Woodstock 99, all rights reserved. Maybe I'll make a zine. So thank you for joining me on this trip down memory lane and pretend that I was able to license the song Sleep Now in the Fire by Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> Reboot the sequel is created by Vin Rodriguez. Podcast cover made with Canva.com. Sound effects from freesound.org. If you have a movie you'd like us to review, you can email Vin at vinwritten at gmail.com. Postscript. Are you still here? I just got back from the Red Hot Chili Peppers concert tonight here in Miami. I hadn't seen the Chili Peppers back since Woodstock 99, and it's been actually a pretty good experience tonight because I got to see them with my daughter, who is now 20 years old, and grew up listening to the Chili Peppers. She actually even bought the tickets for me um, so we could go together. Sharing these things with her just never ceases to amaze me and make me just really, really grateful and, and happy. So thank you, sweetie.